Welcome to the Beijing to Britain podcast with your hosts Sam Hogg and Steve Lynch as we examine the ever-changing relationship between the UK and China. Our aim is fairly simple, to learn more about the decision makers, ideas, threats and opportunities that underpin this bilateral, and to inject some complexity back into the discussion. In each episode, we'll discuss the recent happening, what's going on with some experts, and look at the parliamentary output and field some questions from you. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? I am really good, Sam. Uh, very busy week. I've just come back from Toulouse for a Beijing Rugby Devils reunion for the Rugby World Cup. We won, which is great. And then um, we've both just had a very busy few days at the Conservative Party conference. Should be fascinating to break down some of the news, specifically maybe from a UK-China lens, because there was only one panel or one conversation on China and you were involved. That's right. Yeah, there was only one explicit sort of conversation that took place on China. And the question was, have we got China wrong? And it was hosted by The Spectator. And I was on a panel with Cindy Yu, who runs the excellent Chinese Whispers. We'll link the episode into into the, the, the show notes under here. Sophia Gaston, who does policy exchanges, which is a think tank, does their foreign policy. And then the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly. But I, I thought it was quite interesting. It, it was a an hour-long session in which the first half an hour was the foreign secretary speaking to Cindy. And it's probably the longest I can think of, the longest amount of time that Cleverly has had to set out his understanding and his ambitions for the UK-China bilateral. You know, I thought some parts were quite weak, but I thought the overall structure was quite strong. What was your initial sort of hot take from it, Steve, having listened to it last night? Yeah, I mean, hot take, I'm not sure. But I, so I actually thought, I, I agree with your assessment. I think it was really interesting because it was a 30-minute interview mm. of the Foreign Secretary talking on China. And I think all we've previously had is just snap, sound bites. So I think he sounded a lot more confident on his, on his stance around engagement. He openly addressed some of the criticism from parliamentary colleagues. But I think he made more stronger statements, especially with people trying to simplify the relationship. You know, he, he mentioned that you can't break down a, a relationship of a, of a country into a one-word descriptor. I, 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 sometimes, I sometimes fear that we, we, we've drifted towards a very binary uh, set of habits. And again, that's reflected. I keep being invited. You know, what, what one word would you use to describe China? Mm. And I'm like, well, I don't do that to any other country in the world. No one invites me to say, give me one word to describe your uh, UK's relationship with France. I mean, I, it's just, and it's weird. You know, our relationship with China, just like our relationship with uh, every other country around the world, uh, is complicated, it's multifaceted. There are things that countries do that we agree with and seek to support. There are, even with our closest friends, there are things that they do that we might disagree with and we raise those issues with them. So the idea of, of giving this one word to descriptor to China, where we don't do it with any other country in the world, I think is... Uh, I think is um, I think is foolish. So I think it it was a stronger statement from the the foreign secretary in regards to engaging and understanding being incredibly important. I think one of the things that that maybe we would have liked to have more insight into is the spending. Yeah, he said you could spend money quickly or you could spend money well. I'm not sure this government is spending the money quickly or spending the money well <laughs> yeah. on China capabilities. So I'd love to have known a bit more about that, but. I thought it was a strong statement that the Foreign Secretary did 30 minutes and then more importantly, was on stage with you. Yeah, I mean, it was it was fascinating. And Cleverly is a very amicable and actually very diplomatic person to engage with, which is always nice, uh, not, not necessarily the norm when it comes to politics these days. And, you know, look, I agree with your point. Uh, I thought his comment about you can either spend money, yeah, quickly or spend it well, 
we don't have the time to do to take an either or. I mean, the Conservative Party, the government that is, may not have 18 months to do that, let alone where the UK sits in relation to its investment in China capabilities. One of the things that cleverly discussed, because Cindy pushed him on it, was where is this China capabilities fund? You know, how much is it? Where's it going? And I have to say, I, I, given Steve, how often we've talked about the need to invest pretty dramatically in China capability stuff, it was pretty bleak to hear that there's going to be a pot of money that each department's going to have to apply for and try and win. Like it's some sort of free market, you know, competition when in reality, every single department will need to have its capabilities upskilled really, really rapidly and really well. It, it, we can't sort of spend less money on it and cross our fingers and hope something good happens. I mean, maybe just to take a, a step back and just look at the overall conference. So this was my first ever party conference. It's my first ever Conservative Party conference. I'm going to be completely honest, I don't think there was much of a buzz <laughs> on the streets or specifically in the conference centre. A lot seemed to be happening on the fringes. We can definitely go into some of, some of the details, but everything, everything, every event, every activity was just so domestically focused. Now, maybe because that's a Conservative Party conference and that, you know, that's the aim, but there seemed to be absolutely no foreign policy focus. We mentioned the panel that you were on. That was the only China-focused event, the only China-focused um, activity. And I think we've gone through the maybe 200-plus events, activities that took place, and we can only find a handful of foreign policy activities. So, Maybe what's your kind of general thoughts on that, Sam? Is that a, a sign of the times for the UK? Yeah, so look, like you, I am a, uh, my first ever conference. Um, I was also slightly underwhelmed by the, what I thought would be sort of thick of it, excitement to it. But that that's, I think, reflects the state we're in right now. And to your point about there being a handful of foreign policy events, I, I have to say, I'm not sure whether that reflects a lack of interest or just a lack of, I, I just don't know. Because, for example, the, the Cleverly one that I did was completely packed out. The Chatham House when I tuned into this. That was because of that was because of you, Sam. That's because <laughs> that's because I was paying everyone five pounds to be there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Chatham House one, which I wasn't paying people to be at, was absolutely heaving, and there were various other sort of yeah, fringe yeah. ones like that. So I, I don't know whether it reflects a lack of interest or whether it reflects foreign policy being so far down the government's priority list, and also like conservative parliamentarians' priority lists. They just don't want to speak about it, or they see no value in speaking about it when it comes to China or the Indo-Pacific as a whole. Which is a shame because, you know, you, you can hear in that Chinese whispers one, a, a number of hands went up, people asking really good questions, wanting to know more from the foreign secretary, wanting to know more from Sophia, from Cindy and from myself about the, the issues that we see in this space. And this is a perfect time for politicians to really sort of cut their teeth and speak about these complex, hard to understand and often hard to communicate issues. So, I mean, I don't know about you, Steve, but the thing that I heard a lot of was HS2 chat. And just before this, you were saying that HS2 and China are intrinsically linked in the minds of some people. Why, why is that, Steve? Well, I, well yeah, I, I found it fascinating in regards to if we're, if we're kind of looking at the overall conference of the Conservative Party, as I mentioned, slight strange atmosphere because there just seem to be so many fractions within the party. And I looked through the, the activities and the fringe events and the majority of them were sort of how to fix X, you know, how to fix transport or how to fix education or a, a new vision for... Uh, you know, healthcare, mm. you know, a new vision for for this. And uh, a lot of it was almost, you know, what's the UK's role, you know, and what's our strategy? And I think I was involved in a Future of Conservatism event. And, and it's quite clear that there's, if we take that sort of what you've mentioned is the whole point of Beijing to Britain, that 30,000 foot view, you know, sometimes we can get stuck in the weeds. I mean, what what is the 
the strategy moving forward and again kind of where is the uk and i think maybe that's my point mm. when it comes to we didn't see much of the foreign policy aspect because maybe we're just confused of what we are as a, as a country post brexit and so that comes back into maybe the, the main point of conversation uh, that was taking place at the, the conference which is around hs2 which is high speed rail 2 and again china kind of pushed it or reared its head into it because there was comparisons, comparison to what China has done in the same period of time. I, I don't know the numbers, but uh, when it comes to kind of costings, but we know the amount of uh, same track that's been re- uh, laid. So High Speed 2 was announced in 2008. In the same period of time in China, since 2008, 25,000 miles of high speed rail line has been has been made. I personally believe one of the biggest prohibitors to growth in the UK is the lack of investment around infrastructure. Obviously, it's a very, it's a completely different process um, here in the UK. It's a democratic decision-making process, mm. which is is not the same in China. But you know, the the contrasts are, are really stark when you when you compare it from high speed rail two to the twenty five thousand thousand miles of track that's been laid in China. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a it's a contrast that actually none other than the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson drew out last weekend in his incredibly well paid Daily Mail. Uh, articles that he, he writes once a week you know he was saying and you know we can fact check this i'm sure we'll have people get in touch to fact check this but johnson's point was that at chinese universities chinese communist party members are taught about the failings of democracy and one of the examples they give is hs2 as a failed infrastructure project hs2 started basically around the time that i became a teenager i have never grown up in a country with high-speed rail like you steve i shared the view that that actually underpins a, a modern economy and I think taking a step back to that 30,000 foot view and the, the issues you're raising there about where was the discussion around foreign policy, I think you need to have confidence in your domestic policy and your industrial strategy before you can start projecting into the world what you want from other partners and what you can offer them as well. And so often, Steve, you know, you and I have these conversations with people from all over the place who are like, well, what is Global Britain? And, you know, it's not clear that many MPs have the same vision for that, even from the same party. So I think I went into it scratching my head and left basically tearing my hair out. But I think that's how conference is supposed to be. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think for both of us, it was a really interesting first insight. Met lots of MPs, lots of ministers, understood the the differences in perspectives in regards to where conservatism should be or where the, the future of the party should be. Um, but I think what will be interesting is looking forward to next week in Liverpool, in which it's the Labour Party conference, to which at next week's episode, we will we will be breaking down what Labour's strategy towards China is. Do you have any inclination or any um, thoughts if Labour will focus slightly more on foreign policy or like the Conservatives, it will be all domestic? So I think there's a sense of excitement going into the Labour gathering that, th- that just wasn't there among people my age for the conservative one who work in foreign policy. In fact, many of the people at Labour Conference will be hosting foreign policy events. There's one on Taiwan, one on Hong Kong. So already there's more young people asking these questions who are affiliated with Labour. It's a very exciting time for that party. How much foreign policy conversation will be different from the conservative one in terms of what are the actual meaningful differences? I'm not convinced there are that many yet. But as you know, there's no reason why Labour be setting out its foreign policy stand at this moment. It's got potentially up to 18 months to really get that together. And unfortunately, despite our best efforts, Steve, foreign policy is not a vote winner unless you're saying something really radical, which would be seen as like an anti-British position to take. 
you know, we should become allies with Iran or we should forgive Russia, for example, as two incredibly like hypothetical positions. So, I mean, it's great to it's great for them to flex their muscles on that sort of stuff. And I'll be, as you say, we'll be breaking down what they've been up to at conference. But I, I, I think there's just more excitement there. And there's a younger audience typically as well, I find when I speak to labor people who do foreign policy, they're, they're just a bit younger, a bit more engaged, and a bit more willing to hear a variety of ideas. So speaking of a golden week here in the UK, we're actually going to head over to a golden week in China, which is currently the October holiday known as the Mid-Autumn Festival. We've seen a couple of recent reports about the booming travel industry coming back post-COVID. But one of the most important things over this period, Sam, is mooncakes. It's a tradition over in China to eat mooncakes over the Mid-Autumn Festival. So quick question, have you had any mooncakes? I have not had a single mooncake both this week or in my entire life, unfortunately. So Steve, you know my address. If you feel like being a good co-host, <laughs> ping him over. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So maybe to move off mooncakes, we'll get into uh, an authority on China, currently speaking about the, the Chinese economy. So we're going to go over to Jörg Vudka. Jörg is President Emiratus of the European Union Chamber of Commerce in China, having the unique position of serving three terms as president. Jörg's joining us today. So welcome to the podcast, Jörg. Well, thank you very much. And I'm today with your program in a unique position. I neither speak for BSF nor for the European Chamber. So it's Jörg Wutka Unplugged. Fantastic. <laughs> Unplugged is exactly what we wanted. So let's just jump straight into things. Uh, the, the general state of the economy in China. Uh, we hear such conflicting reports. The headwinds seem to be quite clear. Slowing economy, not the GDP growth that we've expected for the last 23 years, 20, 30 years, you know, youth unemployment, faltering property market. Is this overplayed or is the Chinese economy readjusting to a new normal or given the kind of the, the COVID-19, the monumental failings around lockdown, has China's reopening just not worked? Well, in some ways, there is no Chinese economy because there are in this continent China regional economies. Again, you might do very, very well in Shenzhen and Guangdong uh, and you might be in dire straits in Heilongjiang and in the north of China. Uh, you might be doing extremely well in, in car and in car supplies uh, when it comes to EV, for example. Uh, you might do very well also in luxury goods. At the same time, uh, anything uh, related to the real estate market, uh, meaning if you want to sell furniture or white goods, uh, you might actually face uh, incredible difficult times. So in a way, where are we in the economy? I would say the service sector is doing quite nicely in a way. Uh, you know, tourism is back. Uh, you have... Uh, 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 catering, the restaurants are full. Uh, so people are basically enjoying themselves when it comes to sort of social uh, enjoyment uh, in the sense that they couldn't go out for really one year. And 2022 was a terror year for all of us. Uh, so now you have that coming back. Uh, manufacturing, when it comes to uh, what the world needed from China in lockdown conditions, healthcare equipment, uh, uh, medical stuff, uh, also electronics, uh, uh, that's not really needed anymore. In a way, China was perfect for the world in a lockdown. And now, basically, the world has moved on. So China has to find different routes of, of exports, and they do find it uh, in the car market. We can talk about this later. And then you have, basically, uh, a very slow comeback in the economy, surprisingly slow. And also, the, uh, the non-responsive attitude of the Chinese government was equally uh, surprising. So I guess that we have seen uh, the bottom in, in August or maybe in July. Uh, we noticed that uh, slowly 
consumption is coming back in some quarters. Uh, companies are restocking. But this is all with the backdrop of an incredible price spike. We have overcapacity here. So you might be doing better year on year on volume, but you might still be down on revenues because uh, your sales data shows that prices have dropped by 20 or 30 or 40 percent, depends where you are. So is that going to be a comeback story? We don't know yet. Uh, certainly, it's going to be a challenging situation uh, for many industrial segments uh, because, again, it might drive people out of business. To pick up on that, you know, you talk there about the uncertainty even within China and, and the sort of grand scale of the economy. Uh, if you're an, a Western business or a, an external business trying to engage in China, it sounds like the ground for engagement is moving really quickly and really fast. So what are some critical lessons you've sort of seen, let alone over the last decade, but within the last two years about how a business should be trying to engage in China, how their CEO should be thinking about it? I think know your region, know your segment, and don't overestimate the risks and don't underestimate the opportunities, really. Panic mode doesn't help you, really. It's uh, something where you really have to see where China still have a lot to offer, not just as a demand story, where, as a matter of fact, China is, is very small for us. I give you two data sets. One is, uh, you know, how much did uh, European 27 sell into China last year? That was measly 1.6 million containers. China was shipping 6.4 million containers. So the ratio is nearly four to one. And when you look into uh, this uh, sales that we had last year, we sold 23% more into the Chinese economy than we sold to Switzerland. I mean, that flies in the face of those people that say we're dependent on China. I wish we were, but we are not. We are selling 60% more as Europe 27 in, into Britain. So in a way, uh, for CEOs, it's important to understand really where they operate, where uh, the demand is, and also to see where the technology gains are happening. Because China has an incredible industrial policy. Wherever they announce something, we really have to pay attention because we know they're going to put money there, they're going to crowd out the foreigners or milk them in order to have the technologies, and then they scale up. And that's where the magic of China is. You know, we have 150 EU companies, we have I don't know how many... Uh, uh, new companies in other areas. So in a way, that is always the danger that we're facing, that we underestimate the speed of China and the scaling up. I brought um, a report out in April, the last report as chairman of European Chamber. It was on research development. The title was very interesting. I think, uh, you know, it's good for many, but not for all. It indicated that China virtually has no real research going on. It's all about development. And development is product applications, is process improvement, and so forth. That's where they score. And the, the thing is, I was trying to tell people is, if you're not in the Chinese market, if you're not hanging in there, then all of a sudden you might find better products in global markets giving you a run for the money. So in a way, CEOs really have to sift through all of that in order to see, A, is it sustainable to operate in China? And B, also very important is, when are the Chinese are showing up at your third markets or even in your home market? Jörg, one of the, the, the phrases which I believe you were sort of a bit of a mass mind behind is actually de-risking. So it's moved, the conversations move from decoupling to, to de-risking. And one of the questions that we constantly get asked by governments here is, are companies moving out of China? So are companies moving out of China, Jörg? Yes, companies are moving out of China, primarily Chinese companies. You know, it's companies that actually want to be de-risking themselves. We have to just step away from this kind of foreign angle and see that if you are as Chinese entrepreneur, you want to enter the European market or the US market, 
you might as well want to be in a free trade zone that has been signed between Vietnam and Europe or Indonesia and, and other countries. So in a way, they want to get away from sanctions from the US. They want to have absolutely no problem in access to the European market. Hence, they're moving. And subsequently, some of our European suppliers follow these Chinese companies. It's very interesting to see how the trade between ASEAN and China has been skyrocketing for the only purpose is it's a supply chain story. It's not an ASEAN demand story. So in a way, they move it to ASEAN and then ship it to the US or to Europe and including Britain. I include that for once. So in a way, that's very important to see uh, how, how that develops uh, over a period of time. Otherwise, uh, it, it, is, it is just something where we simply have to learn that European companies sometimes have to leave the marketplace because they're not competitive anymore. We have seen the exodus of Mitsubishi, Ford. Uh, we have seen the French folding up in the car industry. And it's not because of political pressure, because they actually are behind the curve to stay in the jargon uh, uh, when it comes to competing with uh, Chinese car industries. In the car industry, it's all about fight or flight. It's either you really put big money in there and you hang in in order to bridge the gap. Yes, German companies are followers of the Chinese EV market. Or you basically just withdraw and wait and hope for the best that uh, uh, your politicians back home might find the occasional uh, Great Wall of Europe in order to protect you from Chinese imports, particularly EV imports. I think that's a dangerous development. So in a way, I, I really uh, admire BMW, Mercedes and Volkswagen and also, in a way, General Motors and, of course, Tesla, of basically making use of the Chinese uh, supply chains to have the innovation, to have the scale in order to remain a relevant global player. And that's something that CEOs definitely have to watch out. If, if I could push on that slightly, since you've mentioned politicians, Jorgen, and I'm absolutely no businessman whatsoever, but I have spent a considerable amount of time knocking about um, politics. The, the The view from Westminster is often that for companies to be in China and to have an ESG strategy is fundamentally incompatible. You cannot have that environmental social governance strategy, focus on the environmental side and then forget the social and governance side if you're a Western company. And you've seen multiple examples raised in parliament here. How does a company, a FTSE 100 company, negotiate that political trade-off that they're being asked to consider from Westminster? I think prove it. Uh, you have to have audits. You have to have the openness and transparency to invite politicians to come out of their comfort zone in, in Westminster or in our case, the Bundestag, in order to see these companies in action. You can actually operate in Xinjiang and do quite well, actually helping local population to have a decent job uh, with no challenges uh, on, on your religion or whatever. You can do that in Xinjiang, but you have to make sure that you're doing the right things. You have to audit your suppliers. You have to look into your customer base. You have to see where it ends up and come up with uh, commitment letters. Uh, you might have to audit some of those folks and then showcase it to the politicians, NGOs, and uh, even to the media in order to gain the trust. If you just say everything is fine, nobody believes you. So in a way, uh, you know, uh, it's very important that uh, we also include media in this respect uh, because they actually want to go there and see with their own eyes. So but as chairman of the European Chamber, I always went to the party and to uh, the Ministry of Commerce, uh, trying to explain we need media to go unimpeded into the Xinjiang market in order to look at these companies. Uh, because if you say, if you Chinese say, there's no problem. So what's the problem of not letting them snoop around and see how things are developing? It's, it's all about trust, transparency, and accountability. 
of course, that's a challenge here. We have huge problems of getting audit companies to do their job in Xinjiang. We have sometimes problems of companies now uh, getting the facts right. You have seen the development with Bain, with Mints. You have seen Troll guys can't leave the market anymore. That's totally unhelpful. And uh, we need these people to gain uh, credibility. So uh, if I would be in the challenge position still, I would actually reach out and say, you know, if you, if you want us to prove case that we actually do the right thing in China, this is exactly the due diligence companies that we need. And these are the guys that sort of step on this anti-espionage law, get challenged left and right. So in a way, sometimes in China, it's funny, you, you, you come across very well-meaning local officials, they want more business, and then you have these super security, over-dimensioned uh, uh, rules and regulations coming out of Beijing. So sometimes you ask yourself, does the right hand know what the left hand is doing? Yeah. Well, if I could just push you slightly on that, York. So you talked there about the need to audit your supply chain, especially in relation to Xinjiang, as you've, as you've mentioned there. But the perception here, as, as given to Parliament and evidence at various select committees, and I think it's just a perception shared in both the US and uh, obviously I don't want to stamp on your territory, but I imagine in different parts of the EU as well, is that you simply cannot audit your supply chain in Xinjiang in a way that would meet the standards you would see in the West. Is that A, a fair perception? And if that is a fair perception, then how does a British or European company justify operating in a region where actually you, you can't meet the standards you've been asked to meet or you'd be expected to meet back at home? Well, I guess that uh, if you can't prove it, you have to move on. Uh, uh, you cannot live in this gray zone of uh, telling your interlocutors back home that everything is fine. Again, if, if, if you don't have a job of reputable audit company on your papers, if you actually have no chance of inviting people to see with their own eyes, then basically uh, move on, really. And and that's that's what happened. I mean, you have the likes of Adidas, Nike, H&M moving away. Uh, they got hammered uh, by uh, social media in China. And uh, very unfortunate uh, because they did the right thing. Uh, as they can't prove it, move on. But it's, it's a challenge. So in a way, uh, the challenge for those companies that can't audit lies in the communication skills. How do you communicate this to your customers, in particular in China? And there, of course, it's getting dicey. It can be done. Some companies have done it. But at the same time, uh, uh, there's no no question. Uh, uh, China requires credibility. And if you can't go down this road, then you have to basically move on. And maybe that also explains why uh, foreign companies, 16% of them in the European Chamber, in the last survey indicated they are possibly not moving away from China. They're putting more money into other places. It's not just sort of packing up and leaving. It is actually sort of looking into other countries for a couple of reasons. The economy does better. Uh, China's economy is virtually quarter on quarter at, at zero to one percent growth. Year on year, we gave them the low base and we still might get to, to four percent and above. At the same time, when we ask our members where you're heading, 20% of those that want to move elsewhere said we're going back to Europe, Europe in the bigger sense. And that's very interesting because they're fed up with all these kind of uh, papers, uh, supply chain laws, challenges uh, in the capital markets, oh, you're exposed to China, not so good, and so on and so on. So uh, why else would they go back uh, to a market which, of course, has a much higher cost structure but at the same time, they feel like they're at least in the same time zone like the auditors are. So in a way, it's it's all up to China in order to make sure that they don't just talk about reform and opening up, but actually giving these companies that actually want to do more. Here. And 63% of our members says they want to do more. 
if they would have the chance to actually put the money on the ground. Again, it takes it takes Beijing to move, and we haven't seen major movements forward yet. Speaking of moving on, you are one of very few senior executives who is, is actually very, very outspoken on China. Last week, I'm not sure if you're aware, the head of public affairs, Sherard Cooper-Coles of HSBC, um, he was also the chair of the China-Britain Business Council, had to step down from his position at HSBC for comments he made in private yeah. meetings, yeah. Um, all with some relation to, to China. But clearly here in the UK, China has become such a taboo topic to talk about that it's it's literally detrimental to your personal and professional career. So how on earth can the senior executives manage this relationship when you know comments could be taken out of context in private meetings and, and you'll have to step down from your position? Maybe how have you personally managed that? Because you were one of very few people who can balance that line very well. Yeah. Well, I'm a good friend of Sherrod, and I'm very sad to see that uh, he was basically moved moved out of his position. And maybe he was too positive on China. You know, I, I've been very balanced in the sense of, of course, I was stepping up for China when it came to the sanctions on the Olympics. I was against sanctions. I was for uh, the Chinese uh, investment in the Hamburg Harbor. So it's not just that I played uh, a one-trick pony on criticizing China. But I think it needs balance and uh, credibility and authenticity uh, when you actually speak up. And, and somehow I managed to, to find a good mix of praise and, and criticism. And maybe that's, that was his undoing in some respect. Uh, he, he found it difficult in order to actually criticize China because his employer was a major stakeholder over here. Uh, and that makes it very difficult. Again, I never spoke up for my company ever. I was only speaking up on behalf of 1,800 European companies. Uh, that makes it much, much easier for someone to speak up. So in a way, you have to not benchmark me with Sherrod, but actually uh, myself with all the chairs of the other chambers, particularly AmCham, uh, as they're the biggest uh, player in the, in the game uh, as, as the European chamber is. So in a way, uh, if you are having a language that actually pinpoints to the shortcomings, you have to have the facts ready and right. Uh, you cannot end in, in China bashing with overall statements. Uh, simply doesn't fly. A, it is, is not really reflecting the real situation. Uh, you should know better. So in a way, the European Chamber tried always to come up with this. Uh, we have now, uh, my successor launched a paper um, uh, in September with 1,058 recommendations. You know, it's, it's, it's the size of one piece, frankly, you know. So you have... Um, 1,058 recommendations. I would say it's a 1,000 too many uh, because there are 1,058 issues behind it. Uh, and again, uh, when I left the position, uh, I said to the Chinese interlocutors, when I launched it in last year in September, it was 960 recommendations, you know, and I said, please make it half the size, half the issues. And you will, we will easily then showcase China as moving down the road. So in a way, uh, according to what we have seen now, China is moving in the wrong direction, baby steps, but definitely wrong direction. Uh, and you, you have to say so. But at the same time, again, uh, there is lots of uh, China bashing going on. And if you represent your business over here, you have to watch your space, you have to watch your backyard. And if it's unfair, you have to say so. Could I just jump in on that? Because um, I, so I was in, in China for 12 years and, and I tried to explain to people when I first moved, it, it really felt like the country was opening. It was internationalizing. It was liberalizing. Do you think China's kind of gone backwards on these social or economic reforms and sort of nationalism, protectionism and is now seized new mandate? 
or is that very much what we experience in in Beijing, the political capital? And it, it you know, you mentioned right from the outset, it's different in other provinces, but maybe to just generalise, you know, do you think it is heading in towards more nationalism, more protectionism? How do we deal with a country that kind of operates in that in that yeah. circumstances? Well, there's always movement in China, but I think they are not moving backwards; they're moving sideways. Uh, again, they have a huge potential. They have the right people. Uh, they have the right entrepreneurs. They have everything going their way, and apparently, they simply don't know how to stimulate those people and to make them feel confident and happy about it. Social development there has been a little bit, uh, but again, it, it always feels like five minutes too late. Um, they opened up in, in COVID in December last year, basically when, frankly, everybody could realize they capitulated. They called it victory and left the battlefield. Uh, should I have done it the year before? Yes. And I was one of those actually going public in April last year, criticizing that uh, by coming up with a different idea called the Singapore model. So in a way, a social development, in a way, is a funny twist because they have an incredible success story of pulling people out of poverty hundreds of millions of people. At the same time, they seem to be content of not building up a welfare system. And a welfare system is what you need in order to give people the certainty, I can spend money, I can consume, because I'm being looked after. And I think after a year of non-vaccination, of pretending and extending the zero COVID, I think many people lost their faith in that system, unfortunately. So on the social side, you know, look at the kids. Look at uh, uh, that nearly a third, I guess, or nearly half of these graduates find it very difficult to find, get a job. Uh, they, they go through a gruesome 13 years education cycle, and then they end up as a receptionist with a multinational, for example. And that's not acceptable for them, nor for their parents. Or And so in a way, I feel it's really bad for those kids. But there are these, of course, sections of speaking up, this is not nice. And then the president says, well, then toughen up the... Uh, and go to the West, and, and uh, basically it's the language of the 70s. So in a way, I think that that um, uh, welfareism, the, the, the fact that the Communist Party doesn't want to be socialist in this respect, it's funny, less socialist than the Germans and, uh, and the Danes are maybe, is already impeding economic growth patterns. Uh, I think China runs the risk of people hoarding money uh, that actually would be needed more in the shopping centers uh, of China. Are they developing on the economic side? Yes, baby steps. It's not a stalemate. Um, I would say in the financial sector, they have done a couple of good things. Uh, but again, it's all uh, under the pretext of uh, st stability and control. You know, Hence, there will not be any uh, capital account opening of the RMB, for example. It, it's all steered. And they, they got away with this over the last 30 years quite well. And it was a success model because they had the economic growth pattern behind it that actually gave them the speed in order to steer the ship in the right direction. But now they have plucked the low-hanging fruits, and now the challenge is they have to move on to a, a new dimension of growth patterns. And uh, that's the famous middle-income trap discussion. You know, Can they go on like this? Of course not, because the country has totally changed. Are they willing in order to open up more? like other economies have done in the past. We benchmarked with Taiwan, Korea, and Japan. These economies have opened up. They have gone through more volatility. Look at uh, Korea 1997. That's absolutely not acceptable for the Communist Party of China here. So it will all be now, I think, uh, still growth. Uh, China has no crash uh, scenario that I can see. Uh, but it will be slow growth. It will be slow growth around maybe... Uh, 3% uh, uh, for, for the time being. 
and they are undershooting their potential. China has so much more to offer. You've openly said that no one can influence Xi on his aggressive stance on his on foreign policy. As we see some of these the slower growth targets or slower growth in 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 the country in in China, are we now looking at a more aggressive international strategy? And I suppose then what is the end game or is there an end game? It's around an aggressive foreign policy. Well, Stephen, it looks like you're reading Australian media. Uh, <laughs> I yes, actually, I, I did read your interview last week. Yeah, yeah. I, it's actually something where I would warn not to extrapolate. Yes, it looks more assertive um, and it looks more aggressive. At the same time, there are green shoots uh, that indicate that maybe the days of the roof warriors is over and that actually uh, they're trying to accommodate. There is too much of a panic uh, discussion going on you know basically taiwan stands for it you know uh, i really don't see given particularly the ukraine russia war that china and over the next 10 years is going to consider uh, attacking taiwan uh, or even to, uh, to blockade it you know i think it's all uh, that cautious politicians have to work on is uh, deterrence uh, make sure that actually taiwan uh, has the ability in order to defend itself until they decide which which uh, political system they're going to change to or remain. Uh, at the same time, assurances uh, that also Europe has to know uh, that uh, one China policy has not just to be uh, vocalized, but also lived and in the spirit of it and the latter. So that uh, it's something that Lithuania did is, is not, is not going to happen again. So in a way, uh, I think the the assertiveness that we have seen from China is something which sometimes reminds me of Beijing Opera. China, at the end of it, always resorts to pragmatism, I guess. But again, <laughs> how to get there uh, and how to see the point where actually China is just being very noisy and loud, but at the same time, those pragmatic policies. I think on the U.S. side, uh, they've realized that. I was in the White House in May, and it was clear the, the tendency was de-escalation, and I felt that also people here want to de-escalate because they see that there was a slippery slope happening. But again, it's 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 millimeters uh, that we talk about uh, uh, that they can move. Uh, they're stuck in many ways. They're stuck with the Russians since February 4th in this un- never-ending friendship. Absolutely uh, looking at this uh, with disbelief that uh, Russia cannot... Uh, win the war and Russia is is basically sliding down into a very complicated economic situation. Uh, and they are clairvoyant enough to see that basically what they can achieve for the Russians is anti-Americanism. So in a way, the, the BRICS summit in Pretoria, the kind of stance with Russia, always indicates that they can fly far and high because uh, the U.S. made them do so, um, uh, meaning that they offer uh, a wide field that we as Western countries have to look at, you know, how come that China is so popular in the global south and uh, and, and the Belt and Road is going to happen in two weeks from now here? Is it really that it's successful or are we just maybe too noisy with our value-driven rhetoric uh, pushing pushing those countries in the arms of China? So in a way, I, I always plead with European officials not to see that as a quantarian thing, but actually as a competition uh, going on where maybe we should sort of recalibrate our language in order to see that those countries actually have benefits from us. And anti-Americanism is just something that works extremely well for China, unfortunately, and maybe we have to look into this. 
one last question based off that point you just made there. And I think it rings particularly true for us in the UK. We're trying to work out where our place is in the world, what global Britain means to China, to the US, to Europe, to the global south, to countries all over the Commonwealth, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the frustrations, the personal frustrations that I have is what you've outlined there, which is that we have on one hand people using the word nuance to actually push forward a business agenda, which is that's very transparent, actually. And on the other hand, what you've referred to there is China bashing, which is very emotive uh, policy suggestions made up from a position that doesn't necessarily match reality. What do people want when it comes to, in your experience, dealing with, you know, uh, could be a group of people who have come from a global South nation to Beijing and they're engaging with China, Chinese officials. What are they asking for from China that the West, Europe, America, the UK, to an extent, could provide differently? See, when you look into, first of all, provocative maybe a little bit, your place uh, should be in European Union side. <laughs> I mean, that's, of course, uh, it's a far, far fledged. But as a matter of fact, I think uh, that uh, the alignment of Brussels and London should be much closer. Um, and particularly because we don't know who's going to be president in, the, in 2025 in the United States. Uh, second, uh, I think that we should look into what we can offer, which China cannot offer. If you look at the Belgian Road Initiative, it's all about Chinese exporting investment projects, building streets and, and uh, uh, soccer stadiums and so on and so on, which might be beneficial. You know, it's not all black and white. Um, and, but what we can offer is our markets. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, the allure of China is fading fast. Uh, once the uh, respective countries see that China overpromised and underdelivered, that happens to 17 plus one, uh, which I think has now totally faded away because all these Baltics, Poles, and Eastern Europeans were so excited that China is not only just investing in their countries, which actually they didn't need because they got the money cheaper from Brussels. But actually, by buying apples and vegetables and God knows what, nothing happened. Nothing happened. So in a way, uh, it, it, China fell short in in the kind of um, allure that it had on the on the import of the demand side. You know, because again, they are caught in their self reliance thinking. I think if we would open up more our markets for these countries. Uh, uh, in order to be a real uh, big player in the demand side, creating jobs in Africa and South America and so forth. Uh, I think that would go a long way. But again, there is a lot of, I mean, I'm not naive, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, roadblocks uh, uh, by by uh, protectionist forces in our own system, uh, uh, by trade unions worried about jobs and so forth. Uh, so in a way, um, we can we can actually get closer to those countries by, just being a bit more opening on the demand side, opening our borders more to their exports. Uh, at the same time, also by including the elites in our school system, education system. Um, and that's something that also should apply uh, to the openness to Chinese nationals. I think it is terrible to think just because someone comes from mainland China already has the chop on the head, like he might be a possible spy. You know, these, these guys are wonderful in chemistry, in engineering, everything. Why not having the lure in order to showcase that they do much better in London or in Britain, Manchester than, than they might do over here? I think we have a strong, uh, uh lifestyle plus uh, that still applies to many in China as well as, uh, to the uh, global south. Um, we have systems which are more transparent. Um, and uh, despite all the cacophonia of irrational behavior some, of some politicians, we still have the lifestyle people are striving to have. 
uh, we are still benchmarked, I would say. We should we should capitalize on that. Uh, so I, I, I guess it's it's tar- it's very hard uh, in today's populistic world with all the social media going on. But at least you know that's why we don't need politicians; we need leaders. Jörg, thank you so much for your time. I thought Jörg was absolutely fascinating. Um, I obviously knew Jörg very well uh, for my time out in Beijing, but just want to get your perspectives and your thoughts. Yeah, I could look. I completely agree. I had never met Jörg. I had only ever read of Jörg and read his interviews from a distance, and I completely agree. If we had 10, 15, 20 more people like that who could speak to the very frank risks, concerns, and also the opportunities across different sectors in a more coherent way, we would, we especially in the UK, would be in a better position to understand what those threats, risks, challenges, opportunities, feelings are. And, you know, I, I think where we have a quite an interesting yin and yang, Steve, is that you come from a very business background. You've spent your entire career basically to date in China, hearing what British businesses are saying and trying to speak to officials about that. Whereas I spent my very short career knocking about Westminster and hearing people saying about China. And it's, it's, working out how we bridge that gulf and try and find ways that both sides can actually engage with each other within the sort of business community to just like debrief properly about what they're what they're seeing on the ground and that's where i thought york was just you know fascinating and i and i think your point was was really correct in regards to the nuance that sort of businesses may possibly use and then what politicians are saying on the on the flip side of that yeah look i i mean we often talk about how nuance has become a dirty word here and Businesses will ascribe that blame to the politicians. But I would say part of it also is because people who have been pushing for nuance haven't always done so with their agenda laid down in front of them. So there's a natural skepticism towards people who are pushing for engagement who haven't declared their interests, which is very natural in politics anyway. And there's also on the flip side, as we were saying, you know, there's a view that politicians don't know what they're talking about. And it's about trying to basically take away the caricature of both sides and find something we can actually use and utilize. So fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed. So next week, we are looking forward to maybe a quieter week, possibly not, (laughs) but we'll be at the Labour Party conference and understanding what Labour's stance on UK-China relationship is and potential foreign policy moving forward. But look, Steve, I will speak to you next week. I'm going to go to bed now until then. Uh, I'm not going to wake up at all for the next 84 hours at least, and I'm sure it's the same for you. (laughs) 